It's a pleasure to have you here. Can you please introduce yourself? Pleasure to be here. Hey, um, I'm Ed. Um, I'm based in London. I'm Portuguese and I'm building the Volantis protocol with my team at the moment. And what's your background? So my my education, I, I started by by doing an undergrad in physics a couple of years ago. Then, you know, that just I got very interested into machine learning and AI. Um, you know, I did a bit of programming in my undergrad, but like it was not really like proper software engineering. It was just like using programming to solve numerical problems in physics, uh, which it then became almost the same thing when I went to, to just to study maths to, to do my my postgrad. Sorry, my my master's in machine learning. Um, during my time there, I I worked in Formula One for a bit as well. So just trying to use these machine learning models to, to just predict overtakes during a race. Uh, then I realized that I, I quite liked the idea between, you know, merging computers and just crunching data to make predictions. So I ended up doing a PhD in the field. But, but then like something funny happened in the sense that I was like surrounded by a lot of colleagues that knew a lot about programming and high performance computing and so on. And it was quite striking to me that, you know, kind of like how I felt as a, a researcher in AI was I just had like some, you know, I was given some problem or some data set. I had to, to find a solution to get like to pretty good accuracy on the model or like just beat some benchmark to publish a paper. But I, it was quite striking to me that like all of my computing native colleagues that, you know, knew quite a lot about software engineering, they were, they were a lot more empowered because the thing is when you're good with programming, you have an idea, you want to go from A to B and the programming languages and the software will just get it there. Like it might take some time, there might be some bugs, but you feel quite empowered to reach a target. But with AI, I, d I didn't really feel like that because even though it was really powerful what you can do with these models, especially now in the post ChatGPT era, at a time it was more like I was just trying things around and in a very, in a very stressful manner without knowing if it's going to work. So it's very different from like the software engineering toolkit. So, you know, like fast forward, I decided to, uh, to build a startup with a friend of mine uh, when I was like in the middle of my PhD. So I put it on, on pause because that's what you do here in the UK. You, you don't quit PhDs, you put it on pause, I think. And, and so like it was basically here in this the startup that we I got to learn a lot more about software engineering. Um, so I was at a time like I was building what you know what became GitHub Copilot maybe more than two years later. Uh, it was just like you know combining AI with like a, a VS Code editor to just do code completion, code summarization, and things like that. Uh, I learned also a painful lesson at a time, which is um, you know you can't really train your own models from scratch because that costs way too much money, right? You know, GPT-3 at the time already cost 80 million. Uh, we didn't really have the budget to, to remotely train anything as good, even despite making like all the optimizations. So uh, we ended up pivoting to other, to other areas. Like I was, th then I was suddenly doing game, game engine programming and learning about Unity and just, you know, like, they got me even deeper into systems programming, software engineering. Uh, and it was like probably like the, you know, the bull market of 2021 
that I, I just got into crypto. But I did so by accident because there, there was no one around me that knew what was Ethereum or what was a crypto wallet or, or a private key. So in the beginning, it just started by everyone was talking about it on the news. And I felt really badly because I didn't even know what was a blockchain or a private key or, you know, what even... I, I never heard the word Ethereum even at the time. So I just got to read, to read a book. You know, I got to know what's a private key and what's, what's a blockchain in, in, the, in dummy terms. But then there was something that just got me curious about it, right? Because I, I always found like distributed systems quite interesting, even though I came from a different area. So it just, the, fo the natural follow-up was just to, to become a user, right? You know, you get a bit of ETH, you're suddenly on Uniswap for the first time. Uh, then, you know, mainnet is too expensive, you end up on BSC or Polygon to, to just like interact with the apps, etc. cetera. Um, but, you know, like just because the time that it was, you know, me as a, as a crypto outsider, I just looked at it like a casino because that's exactly what was happening on, you know, all of the Uniswap V2 pools and like the trap tokens and so on. But the thing is, yes, I mean, it was a casino. I, I lost like a small amount of money just playing around because of, you know, all of these trap tokens and pools. But like there was something there, right? You know, f for me, it was really powerful just to have the ability to, you know, just install a wallet and permissionless interact with all of these apps without going through KYC or a lot of hurdles that you would have in legacy systems, right? Um, so then the moment where I kind of like decided to be a bit more technical was when I just couldn't stop thinking about DeFi or crypto when like I was just curious, right? And then it comes to a point where you, you want to learn a bit how to code because then you see like you go on Dex tools and like you, you click on liquidity pools. You see like these, uh, these addresses with like a red mark and this is basically like uh, an MEV bot, right? And I, you could easily see that, okay, these people are making like 0.1 ETH, 0.2, sometimes more than that. And But how are they doing it? Like, are they an HFT firm? Do they have co-location? You know, do they have like a, a special role? And just by doing some vague research, it turns out that not necessarily, like they're just like, you know, hardworking people that compete in a mempool and, you know, whoever has the best code or, or, or the, the best strategy just ends up winning. For me, that was something new as well, because I came from a world where in order to do something in, in AI, like training a machine learning model or just, you know, getting the GPUs I need to, to publish a paper, I needed to ask for permission. And then there's like budget considerations and a long queue to get the job submitted and so on. So for me, it was very interesting in EO. I was like, OK, so I don't know too much about NFTs or like the ICOs or like the potential narratives, but are you telling me that me as like someone who just randomly showed up can actually write some code and you know compete on the same grounds without barriers that was mind-blowing right and that was that was the moment where i dropped almost everything that i was doing before to just learn about how the systems work so you know next thing you know you're, you're doing your first solidity course um then you're writing your first contract to interact with Uniswap pools, and then you you learn things like you learn to program program in Go, to look to look into get source code, to reverse engineer it, to be able to to do something in a mempool, and you know like a couple of months later that I was, and the very first time that I was about to set up my system, actually you know it's it's the things that you don't know that kill you in the beginning, right? So I, I thought I had it all figured out, you know, like my system seemed to be working on, on testnet for 
for a specific strategy that I was doing that only one one other person was doing at a time. But I got wrecked because of Salmonella tokens, right? Because the the thing is, you I might think, okay, if I simulate the state on top of the previous block, I'll I'll get to know exactly what this transaction does. Well, Salmonella tokens show you that's that's really not the case. And if you're not careful, you you can actually like lose some funds and things like that. That happened on the first day. I learned the painful lesson that um, you need to have some checks and bounds. You can't just trust simulation. And so I changed the strategy to have like a token whitelist. Uh, I did I did decently well for like a couple of weeks. And this was basically like around April or May in 2021. So, you know, Flashbots still only allowed to, sum to submit one bundle and like multi-bundle submission only came afterwards. And once, you know, multiple bundles of submission came in, the strategy became a lot more difficult to run because I was doing it in a, in a very strange way, right? Um, so I knew that one, only one person was running the strategy and I used that knowledge to, to, to my advantage. As in, when you know there's only one bot in the mempool running the same strategy, you don't even need to do complicated things like uh, you know simulating the latest block and just like resubmitting a transaction. What it can actually do is you can just like look at the other uh, searcher's transaction in the mempool. You just look at the call data because at this point you know exactly what they're doing, right? They were trying to encode the call data with like some, some key that was in the decompile contract. But the idea is I knew the strategy, I knew what the contract was doing. So I just take that call data. I don't simulate anything. I just submit my transaction like with some higher gas cost. So I was doing pretty well with that. Then, you know, multi-bundle submission came in. It just leaked away a lot of alpha because now other people can see the strategy. Then it became popular. And, uh, you know, just the fact that you have multiple bundles, it made sandwich trades a lot more pervasive on top of the block where I wasn't really doing a sandwich trade, but like it was something that uh, it overlaps in terms of like the same opportunities. So I realized that MEV is like is something a bit stressful, where you know like you may have something today, but then you need to adapt tomorrow. And like I didn't want to have this emotional roller coaster because at this stage, honestly, like I was more in for the tech rather than the the MEV and and the profits itself. So. Yeah, that that was the time that I I stopped doing MEV and I went to the next stage of like getting a part time job. Right, and how was the process of setting up your first MEV system? Because you know it's a bit of a black box. Many people don't know how to go about it. How how did you figure it out on your own? Uh, I I was very, I was fortunate enough to accidentally go into the Flashbots Discord um, because. At the time, there, it's not b because you had a lot of content there at the time. You know, I was still just learning, even learning the basics and just trying to do to do things on the fly. But the thing is, if you know what to what questions to ask, you you will see that you know on the flashbots Discord, it just you go on Discord, you type specific keywords, you would find like maybe one or one or two people just dropping like little teasers about how you could go about doing it. And you know, like the, I'm talking about people like Nathan Worsley, like a pretty a pretty popular MEV searcher, and some others. You know, basic things like how do you simulate your transaction to see the effects? Uh, well, you had an answer there. You're like, okay, probably need to look into Geth. Like that was enough just to to get me started, right? And then other things like um, 
optimizations like you leave one way worth of a token balance in your smart contract just not to have like the cold storage right the next time you do a transaction you know you just start like to make a list of all of these tricks but i would say that if you know what to look for even if the information is scarce you can still go a long way and just fill in the gaps as you go yeah as a good advice there's like just a little a lot of little nuggets out there and if you're able to like pick them and like, put them together everything you can see the big picture and how did you find this guy doing the singular bot strategy at the time uh that, that was actually quite funny because that was the time where uh, i didn't even know how to code so it, it was like i was just looking at like the the red the red um robots on on the x tools from the liquidity pools and the pattern usually goes like you know if you see a sandwich trade you get like a, a robot a normal trade and then the robot again right but then i was seeing like a different kind of pattern and i got intrigued where basically it was like there was the robot then there was like a bunch of transactions and there was even like a sandwich here in between and then the robot sold at the very end. But the thing is, the robot was actually the one that made the most profit. It's like for an outsider like me, it just looked like this person was like just predicting the future, right? And for me, that was mind blowing. Like, okay, maybe the blockchain is not as accessible as I thought. It turns out it was actually like a, a, a very different kind of strategy. So what this robot was doing at the time was so after I went deeper into like to looking at a block and like the transaction logs, what what was happening is you know on Uniswap v2 because there was like a ton of slippage. When you have like a pool with you know low liquidity, what what it can do very easily is you know like it's like 2021, right? You have new pools being launched all the time. Everyone has fear of missing out, and it's a very psychological effect, which is. If you're like a regular user in the Uniswap UI and you just want to buy the token as soon as possible, your transaction reverts. What's your immediate instinct? So your, your immediate instinct is to just resubmit as quickly as possible with higher slippage, right? And the bot was exploiting the psychological effect because what was happening is he would see the first Uniswap browser transaction. He would make it revert on purpose but he had a very high conviction that the user would just try and buy it again and he sold at the very end of the process. So it's all based on psychology and w once you see it from that perspective that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that's very cool. A lot of people assume that it's all a bunch of moon math and you have to, you know, be really on top of all those things. Well, probably you need to nowadays, you don't have that probably kind nowadays. of opportunity, but it's always on a, like a psychological thing that people are just going to um, increase the slippage a little bit. And do you still follow the MEV landscape? Do you have been keeping track of the different strategies and how they've changed since then? Absolutely not at all. Like, because the, the moment like I... So then I, I started to work at Gelato like as, as a core developer and... I was also like part-time trying to finish my PhD because that's what I told myself. I said, okay, if I'm going to get a new job and do something completely new, at least I want to try and finish my PhD. And at the time it was a bit more like a sunk cost fallacy. Like I wasn't ready to fully give up yet on what I had built the, the previous years. Um, but the thing is, you know, once, once you're in crypto, like every, 
it's like every everything there's like an exponential amount of information right it's literally impossible to keep track of everything and if you want to be productive in like in whatever specific thing you're working on you just you need to be really good at like switching off everything else so for me it had to happen with mev but it's not just because of that it's also because usually what you see of write-ups on twitter they're already like the leak of alpha right because the real mev is being done by couple dozens of searchers they're not even they may they might be friends in real life or online but they don't share too much with each other and you know what what you will learn in six months you will it will make you mind blown but it will be like a next wave already it's it's super competitive and you know it has quite very talented people but yeah yeah and how did you go from that to getting your job at the gelato network um i mean maybe a bit of luck as well i mean uh i i was just looking for like a, a couple of positions in in the space and you know it's it seemed interesting what gelato was building because it was this combination of like blockchain infrastructure but at the same time with a ground in the application layer because you know it's it's a keeper network you build up um infrastructure for the apps and for me it just felt that i i had a lot to learn because you know if i learn quite a lot about these two domains then I'll be fine for whatever I want to build next. Could be like a good a good background. And do you think your MEV experience helped you secure that role? Uh probably the only thing, right? Be because if it wasn't for the for the MEV experience, I I wouldn't even know what's a smart contract. So I I had some knowledge like, you know, like I just said, look, I may not be the most organized smart contract developer yet, but like, you know, here's a, a bot that I wrote, here's like the highly optimized smart contract that looked terrible in assembly, but you know, like at, at least like I on the very on the very specific niche I knew what what I was talking about. So that that was enough just to get me in, I guess. Yeah, and I think for you to do MEV, you need to know the if you're in at work at a certain depth that just a regular depth wouldn't have to get into so that's definitely an advantage as well yeah so it's kind of like i started from like a, a different side of the the infrastructure stack but then you know what once once i joined the team then i was just learning a lot of a lot of things in the beginning right because then i was like okay actually shouldn't really write smart contracts like that because it's dangerous they might have bugs it doesn't have enough safeguards and so then, you know, it, that was the time where I looked into open Zeppelin contracts and you start to, to get a bit aware of best practices. And even on the application layer, you know, I was using Go for the MEV bots, but now it's mostly about TypeScript and Ethers.js and, and things like that. Uh, then you learn about hard hat, hard hat deploy. And, you know, like over, I would say over the first four to five months, it was just getting super familiar with the, the entire application layer stack for EVM chains. And how did you see from that to your next job? Um, yeah, so, so so TLDR was that, um, you know, I, I really enjoyed like having this job at Gelato, which I started part time. But then, you know, like the final tipping point for my PhD was, you know, I was trying to 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 just be on time for for some paper deadline that I had in November that year or something. And it was becoming really stressful to manage both, right? Because it's like you do four or five hours a day of like uh, 
blockchain work and then you go to your PhD research where you have to do like proper experiments. You need to ask permission to get GPU time. The jobs don't go as planned, so you need to, to wait a couple of days just to get it running. Um, so I was getting a bit frustrated because I was like, it seems that a PhD is just a sunk cost at this point, right? I would, I would love to have finished it in a different time, but I, I just stumbled upon crypto and blockchain. So it, for me, like just going to, to ETH Lisbon, like my first in-person conference, and just by talking to the people and seeing how exciting the space was, I was like, okay, this is, I think this is my kind of crowd. So I quit the PhD, I went full-time in about December, and next thing I know, it was actually like probably the most stressful moment of my, moment of my life because it was just about like one week after I, I quit my PhD. Uh, something happened, which is this, um, I'm not sure if you heard, but um, there was um, a post-mortem about GUni, one of the products that Gelato was building. So things ended up going well at, in the end, but um, there was like an exploit in a swap router that looked a lot like what DYDX had just a couple of weeks earlier. Uh, you know, like we were lucky because like we got alerted about that exploit very early. So, you know, there I was in the war room uh, just one week after I started full time. Um, you know, we, we knew how to patch the bug. That's cool. But then the thing is, once you patch the bug and you escrow just about 26 million wor worth of funds at a time, then, you know, like it's it's going to be open game for like the black hats, right? Because they will see, okay, something happened. Like a lot of TVL was moved. What's going on here? And then it was like, okay, we just rescued the, the you know, maybe 99% of the funds. But then you need to keep an eye for potential black hats. Because the thing is, because of the, the nature of the bug was like an infinite approval, right? And the thing with infinite approvals is that you can't really sleep for a long time. Because whenever the users go through the next transaction, a black hat could steal their funds that way. So... What happened was um, we were, were like working day and night just to get like the the searchers ready, you know, just to front run these transactions to try and escrow securely for each user that, that has approved this contract. Uh, I think it was like there was at least one transaction where the same hacker that hacked the YDX a couple of weeks ago probably like he just adjusted a server in a couple of hours. So he, is, he was able to get like maybe a few hundred K from a user. But afterwards, like, you know, we got some help from Flashbot's team and a bunch of searchers and we managed to uh, white hat rescue m most of them afterwards. And then eventually like people just revoked their approvals and things became safe over time. Uh, that was like a huge, a huge learning lesson as well. And, you know, I w it just told me, okay, I like this is stressful, but I'm here for real. Like I'm here for the tech and for the long term. After that, it was like I was I was building a couple of products. Uh, you know, like things like Gelato Relay. I was working at the time. Uh, I worked on like the core uh, infrastructure of the Keeper network, and I was just get, getting naturally drawn drawn to DeFi because you know GUnit this project that started as like a product to make LPing easy on Uniswap V3. It was starting to become much more than that because there was product market fit. They eventually spun off into their own company called Arakis Finance. Um, but you know, just just by like exposure to whatever they were doing at a time, I was like, okay, let me just try and read Uniswap V3 and like getting a bit familiar with concentrated liquidity and the latest of DEXs and DeFi. And 
it just felt like something super interesting to me because you know it has to do with value exchange there's like a lot of gas spent on that there's a lot of users and dexes are like one of the biggest product markets fits in crypto uh so it, you know i just started by learning like in my free time over a couple of months and and that was like of course like in the the free hours that i had from my full-time job but then you know once i got more familiar and like at a time I was also talking to my co-founder a lot and it was just like we had a lot of conversations about you know the way DEXs have been designed for for a couple of years and the questions that came to mind were like why do DEXs have to be so monolithic that, that, that was the first question because you know for the most part maybe up until recently building a DEX w just looked like the following as in you're a team, you have like a pretty good idea for an UAMM or, or liquidity pool design, and then it just crammed it for, for a couple of months, but you do so in a very not so coordinated way. As in, doing that just means you define your own interface, you define your own set of smart contracts, completely oblivious to whatever else has been built out there. And what does that mean? Well, it means a couple of things, but one is that you don't really have the equivalent of like open Zeppelin contracts to get started in AMM development, right? You cannot stand on the shoulders of giants and just, you know, reuse battle-tested components so that you don't have to start your decks from scratch. So that was the first thing. Um, I would say the other one is the fact that because you, you don't design your liquidity pool with like a specific interface in mind, then it's going to be uh, harder to just get aggregators and wallets on board to bring order flow. Because the thing is, you just launch a new contract with like a very different set of security assumptions, and now the aggregators need to look into it. Uh, they need to spend like countless dev resources to to integrate it with this new thing, and then you may not even have like a lot of liquidity to start with. So it's going to be really difficult to get an initial order flow, and if you can't get the order flow, it's you know it might be difficult to get a liquidity because the APRs are not there. So we're going more into a different question, as in you know could you just think of like building a DEX as building like a set of reusable um, smart contract components. Because the thing is, like, it's 2023 and I think that writing smart contracts, it looks a lot like writing hardware. Like not because of the language or like the, the tooling that you have, but because of the, the time to development, all of the testing that you have to do and the security cost and, and things like that, right? So. If there, if there was somehow a way to think of DEX as like reusable components, then that means that if you, wanna if you have a great idea in a DEX, but maybe someone already built a really nice module to compute dynamic swap fees that could help with, you know, impairment law, with L mitigating LVR, or things like uh, maybe someone built an order book and you just want to build a hybrid between an order book and an AMM, Maybe you don't need to build the order book from scratch because you could just build a smart contract that inherits a lot of the callbacks and logic from there in, in a fairly safe way. So that that's the direction that we're headed, right? Uh, so, but that was just one part, you know. Of course, like I'm just talking about a very low-level architecture. I haven't said anything about you know what kind of AMM or, or DEX designs actually one could build to tap into new use cases or like fix new pain points. So that was kind of like the next thing on the line where, you know, just through a lot of discussions saying, okay, we look at Uniswap V3 and like, it's very interesting. It has changed the DEX landscape completely. It, it was like a huge milestone innovation, but 
the way that V3 is approaching the problem is in saying, here's a common parameterization of liquidity. So long as everyone agrees that their primitive is the V3 range order, we have an efficient way to aggregate all of data at swap time. But the thing is, what if you want to run a super complex strategy, right? What if, what if instead of having you know one V3 range order at a time, you may need a hundred of them, maybe to shape a Gaussian distribution or like to to do something more complicated? Okay, that's just one part. You know, it will cost you quite a bit of gas to set this up, but it's not just that, right? Because being considered liquidity design, and the fact that all of these 100 range orders they're like independent from each other. Let's say that the price moves against you, and now you want to, you know, just adjust your perfect Gaussian, maybe rebalance to a new price range so that you can be in range, capture more fees, protect yourself, etc. The problem is, it's going to cost you a lot of gas that's going to exceed the block gas limit, right? Because it takes you about, uh, I would say, 200k gas to just, you know, burn a V3 range order and just make a new price range. And you'd have to repeat this for all of them. So it's clearly not scalable. Like even on the L2s, you're going to exceed the block gas limit. So we're just trying to think of a different question as in, okay, instead of just having these, you know, super flexible decks that, you know, uh, tries to cater to a lot of people at the same time, why don't we just ask a different question as in, why don't we acknowledge that, you know, there are trade-offs when designing a DEX or an AMM and so the question is not so much about how to build the one DEX that fits everyone's preferences, but more about how do I build one that is extremely domain specific, does one thing really well, but it's much better at that specific job. But you do that in a way which it gets very easy to aggregate with everything else, each one complementing each other. So that, that was the next thing that we had in mind, aggregation of value exchange logic in the most efficient way that we, we could think, uh, which I'm going to talk about in a bit. Um, specific DEX designs that solve some of the pain points that we've seen, like the one that I just discussed on liquidity management. Uh, and yeah, that's that's pretty much the motivation for the core of Atlantis. Then I joined Netamind, um, and it was like kind of like an incubation process where, you know, I, I was there with my co-founder. He was, he was already the CTO of Netamind, and we just built a team. And then in, uh, I think it was about in February this year that we, we spun off as a, our separate entity and stuff. I see. And how do you begin to develop something that is supposed to mitigate so many of the issues? How do you build something that it's supposed to be so malleable, uh, but at the same time, secure? Um, I would say like modularity and, and reusability of code are your friends here, right? Um, because the approach that we took when designing like the liquidity pools, which is like basically what makes the core of, of a decentralized exchange, uh, we, we just, you know, we looked at like everything that had happened in the past four or five years, and you, c you can see some sort of like em emergent structure. For example, like you can describe almost every single DEX that has been deployed until today as like a combination of the following components. Like there's a swap, you know, in the swap function, at least what it looks like is, you know, step one is, okay, you have some basic data checks. You always need an every smart contract. And then the next step is you, c you calculate like a swap fee 
most of the times like this fee is like a constant immutable value like you have an uniswap pools sometimes it can be a bit more fancy and be dynamic and depending on volatility or momentum or other heuristics once you calculate the swap fee now it comes like the cordex logic right where you just you inform the lp positions that you know here's the swap and here's the amount and here's the limit price or the amount required and it's just like readjust the positions to fill in that order according to, s to some conditions and at the end there's you know there's optional things like you know the pool might have an internal price oracle and so if that's the case you just update the oracle data accumulator with some new data because maybe there's like a a lending protocol or like a third-party protocol that really needs this decentralized oracle and hopes that it's robust enough uh, so for the most part you can really see it like that and then maybe there's other things like um, in some cases like you may you may want to trade against liquidity pool but you want to have like more custom access management for example you may want to say something like, uh, you know, only this address can add liquidity or withdraw by default under some conditions and things like um, if someone uh, wants to, to add more utility to, to their ecosystem, they could do something like people that hold this NFT, they will get like a rebate in, in fees or like, you know, have like some conditional execution logic depending on identity or credentials. So that's that was like our starting point, I would say. So we we built the first type of pool that we call, it's called the sovereign pool. And the idea of a sovereign pool is that it's composed of reusable modules. It has the one that we call a swap fee module. It has what we call the liquidity module, which for the most part contains a DEX logic. It has an optional Oracle module to accumulate the, the price data. And it has what we call a, a verifier module. So the, the cool thing is that, um, if you're like now an X developer and you really see some really cool primitive that is already built in there, you may not need to start from scratch. It's like you literally just assemble these components as they are, which hopefully will have been audited and like have been battle tested, and you just add your own business logic. And one example which you know at least motivated us was you know at a time people were starting to explore dynamic fees, and now more uh, even more so. But the thing is, we, you know, okay, let's let's assume that a researcher like someone that, that does good work comes up with like a better way to calculate trading fees dynamically or like a better price oracle or like something else, right? Uh, what would happen for the DEXs that have been deployed in the past five years that are in production? Well, it's actually not very easy or, or even possible for them to just upgrade to this better component, right? because they would, it would basically mean they have to rewrite the whole new protocol, there's security risks, there's audit costs. But if you had this modular pool design, you could, let's say, let's say you have a pool today that has you know, a Uniswap V2 liquidity module co with constant product, and it has like the constant fee module, which maybe is not good enough for your LPs. Well, if someone just writes this module only once to say, I want to calculate trading fees based on things like uh, momentum and, and volatility or other heuristics, then all you need to do is swap out the previous module, put the new one, and so you don't have any code changes, you don't break anything else in the contract, and you have like very encapsulated security assumptions as well. And how would that swap occur? Is it like a governance proposal or is it um, like, um, yeah, how does it work? Yeah, so it, 
each pool that gets deployed, it has the concept of a, a pool manager. As in, basically, like, we decided to design the protocol, like, with very similar principles than the way Uni Uniswap upgrades work, right? Because Uniswap upgrades is, uh, they come up with a new version, they deploy the smart contracts in an immutable way, and people just opt into these new structures. So, basically, like, of course, like Valand is going to have its own governance layer, which I can discuss in a bit, but we wanted to design the protocol so that governance has literally zero interference to, with regards to the core logic and some of the security assumptions. So basically the way we're doing it is, you know, people deploy their own pool and um, they're like, they can choose whatever stru uh, governance structure they want. You know, it could be immutable if you want to have certain guarantees or it could be governed by the DLPs uh, in their pool, or could be governed by an external DAO or a multisig, etc. They, they would be the ones to swap it out. I see. And let's step back a little bit and try to look at it from a high-level perspective. What are the major components that you have going on for this whole thing to work? You have your different pools, you have your different modules. Can you give us an overview of all the pieces and how you guys piece them together? Sure. So this is just like the, the first pool type, but I think it's the easier one to explain. Then we're going to move on to the next one. So in this, con in this modular construction, so one simple example, like, uh, so for example, like one of the, the models that, w that we built, uh, you know, basically like we, we call like Dex designs liquidity modules. Each one focus on like a different use case. But there is one that we we call the Stitch Liquidity Module. And it's a bit of a strange name, so let's just unpack that for a second. So basically what it does is it tries to be like a, a more flexible replacement for what Curve Stable Swap is doing. As in, Curve Stable Swap is really good for if you want to trade like assets that are like one-to-one -one pegged. So the idea behind this one is it's a similar, it's a, well, it's a different construction where instead of having like the curve being determined in the autonomous way, it kind of, you know, instead of the smart contract calculating all of the parameters, it's more like you specify kind of like the shape of your bonding curve and you can do so like in a very gas efficient way. So what you can do, you, you can make statements such as um, within this range of liquidity bounds, I want to follow like a low slippage curve, maybe close to linear. But if you go beyond these bounds, you will fall back into constant product. And so you can adjust this to like different assets. So you can adjust to stable assets. You can adjust to assets that trade at a slight premium above one, like some stable coins over collateralized stable coins, or you can even have it working for like uh, volatile pairs, like, you know, if USDC, where the curve would adjust based on like some Oracle or like some configuration that is specified. So the way in which you would go about deploying a pool here is, you know, step one, you need to deploy what we call the pool contract. And that's basically just a low level contract that is meant to, uh, you know, to hold to hold the funds for the position. It follows like, you know, the best smart contract practices that we could find. Uh, it ha you know, it exposes like the reentrancy locks if you want to make sure that no one is trying to reenter through the pool on other models that you depend on. Uh, so you deploy this liquidity module, you, uh, you attach it to the pool, and then you may think about, okay, maybe I want a better way to calculate swap fees. And now you just go in on a menu and you pick, okay, I like this model because it has fees that adjust on volatility or like something else. You just plug it into the pool as well. 
And maybe in the first couple of months, you may decide, okay, this, this is good enough for my use case and just to get the ball rolling. And maybe later on, someone will say, I, re I really like what you built here, but I would actually like to take your LP tokens and make them and integrate them in the lending protocol or something like that. So at a stage, what you can do is, if you need an Oracle, you can just come into the pool again. You just put the price Oracle there and you can just read the price from there with quantifiable security assumptions and economic security. And how would that work with uh, like plugging in any Oracle? How are you guys making sure that that Oracle is going to be sufficiently secure in some way? Um, so it, it depends on like the, the way you program them. So when I'm talking about Oracle here, I only mean that Oracles that are like intrinsic to the pool, right? Oracles that just like accumulate some data and then take some sort of weighted averages. And so it depends on how you do it, but there's, tra there's trade-offs here. So for example, if you want to ensure a high level of like, you know, manipulation resistance, you can have, um, uh, you can have like larger observation windows, you can have like different weighting terms in your formula. You can do truncation of observations. For example, you can say that if the swap was like above, I don't know, 100 million in one transaction, just cap it maybe to like 10 million to just amortize the effect that you have on the price oracle. That's that's a simple thing to do. But there there's other couple tricks, right? And depending on how you want to find a sweet spot between how responsive your oracle is versus manipulation resistant, which you can quantify using off-chain simulations and by looking at liquidity locked in the pool, uh, you know, applications will be will have like a pretty decent uh, overview as to whether they should make the trade-off or not. Right. And so you have the different pools and would the liquidity of all these pools reside in their pools themselves? Or do they all congregate at some point in the whole ecosystem? That, that's, a, that's a good question. So I actually forgot, but an, another model that exists, it's, it's like, it's not something that you need to, to write a lot of functions for, but it's this concept of like where funds should be stored, right? So the, the way I described it so far, just to keep things simple, is you would put the, the reserves into the pool uh, and the, that sometimes that may, may or may not be a good idea, right? For example, it might be a good idea if your liquidity pool has rebased tokens, like stake ETH, right? Because singleton contracts, they, they're not, they're usually not equipped to handle rebased tokens because you need to be robust to change in balance that could happen at every block. And it requires like special kinds of considerations like rounding errors on transfers as well. So maybe if, if it's a rebased token, you would want to have it in, in the stored in the pool itself because the pool is already equipped to handle a lot of these considerations. But it's not like the only structure possible because in this kind of pool design, you can also make a statement to say, I want the LPs to keep the funds by default in some shared smart contract. And you call, could call that a singleton, right? And at the same time, when a trader go, comes into this pool and says, look, I want to trade this token for that token, you could also tell the pool, look, instead of leaving the input tokens in the pool itself, just please transfer them directly to my singleton contract that I, I, was, I just specified. So in this way, like, it's an example where you can like have these gains of like inefficiency by, by keeping funds all in the same place, but you don't need to do so through the singleton architecture. It becomes more like an opt-in system where you choose, do you want to have them in the pool or do you want to have it somewhere else? 
Okay, and you also mentioned that, for example, in the uh, Uniswap architecture, gas is a very limiting factor depending on how often you want to change your position. And what, how are you able to mitigate that with this protocol? Sure. Um, so there was like a, a specific liquidity model design. So, so far I described this one called the Stitch ALM, which is an analog for continuous bonding curves. Uh, so the second one that I'm about to describe is is something that it was really custom made for liquidity managers. So basically the way we approached the problem was we said, okay, the fundamental reason why it's difficult to do complex liquidity management on V3 is because it somehow treats all of these range orders as like different entities. And because they are different entities, that's the reason why the smart contracts needs to move, you know, apply a transformation to one at a time. And that gets like to a linear increase in gas costs, which can become very large. But this model takes a different approach. So the idea is, the first thing that you're going to say is, um, there's only one liquidity position. And wh what does that mean? It means that now you don't need to see all of these bi liquidity bins or range orders as kind of separate. You can you can able to see them as more like, a, for example, a glued histogram, right? Because the w the way you would think about LP here, it becomes something like um, a liquidity manager just you know deploys the contract and they set the initial shape of liquidity. Let's say that it's it's a perfect Gaussian. They may do that with like maybe a hundred or even a thousand bins. So that's like a gas cost which they probably have to pay once just just to get the ball rolling. And, but then what happens is, you know, because you make the assumption that the entire position is glued into one, then you can basically think of this histogram as like just anchored to some shift variable. As in, the moment you say this entire histogram is the same and the bins are not like separate entities, what you can do is you can say, okay, now I just have this big, big chunk of liquidity with arbitrary complexity and shape. And if you want to update that in, in the price range, you know, to do very e efficient liquidity management, you just change literally like one or two storage slots. Because all you have to do, you need to change the, the, the anchor tick that implicitly moves all of the, the coordinates at once. And that's the reason why you go from like something that is linear in gas cost and that could exceed the block gas limit to something that costs about 30 to, to 35k gas. And how would it look like if I wanted to change the shape of that um, liquidity that bin, that giant um, glued bin? So there, there's a couple of ways in which you can do it. Um, so if you want to change the shape itself, there's there's some uh, advant there's some things that you can do to make it easy. As in, let's say that you know your Gaussian is like is like this, and maybe you want to change like the leftmost portion. Let's say just like maybe the first ten bins. Uh, so basically what you can do is like, uh, there's a, f there's going to be a function, a smart contract where you can transverse all of these and just like change the weights in a way that does not affect the total mass of the distribution. And that's basically the reason why you're able to do local changes without having to override all of the other bins or like, or even like the global properties of the, the distribution itself. But the powerful thing is, you know, it might be that a lot of times you don't really need to change the shape per se maybe it's just enough for you to, to just shift to a new price range. You know, one example is, let's say that um, you think that the, the market is moving against you 
and you just want to like reposition your liquidity to a more favorable price range as soon as possible. Uh, so in this case, it's actually good enough if you just you know quickly craft the transaction, just move the whole chunk of liquidity, let's say from a center of like ETH at price 2000 to ETH at price 2200. And with this very simple low gas cost transaction, you know, it just protected your your own position very efficiently without changing the composition of reserves or anything like that. As in, usually when you think about, uh, you know, updating liquidity positions on constant liquidity exits like V3, people think about shifting and rebalancing as the same thing, right? And that has to do because of the, the properties of the invariant where if you shift to a new price range, then the, the quantities that it should deposit are on that given range need to change, so you do a rebalance. Here, you don't have to do that. You just like first shift your price range to protect yourself, and if you're really confident that the, the price has stabilized around that area, then you can, do, um, you can do a rebalance transaction, which means you take out a portion of liquidity in the position, you swap it against any trusted external AMM design, and then you, re you put the reserves back into the position again. Right, yeah, that makes sense. And before we were talking about the stitch, LM, St the stitch, stitch liquidity, liquidity model. model. Yep. Can these models work with each other in some way? Uh, good, good question. So these specific two cannot, but um, now, now that that takes me to the, to the next part, which is so sovereign pools. The thing is, they're super flexible. They can literally support any kind of Dex logic including this one and the, the stitch liquidity module, but they were not meant for, for something that we're about to do next, which is like, we call it like supercomposability and dynamic routing. So now that leads us to a concept that we call universal pools. And this might seem like the, it's perhaps like the most exotic thing that we, we just have to tell the world because it, so the way it works is it's a liquidity pool where you can have multiple uh, AMM designs at once. And the, the way it works is you could have, for example, the first AMM design could be this, you know, GLA that I just mentioned. The second one could be um, something that looks like some sort of order book where the liquid is aggregated in a specific discrete price. It gets filled and then you move on to the next stick. You could have something that looks like, for example, Trader Joe V2 because you know, it works with discrete prices and it's similar to the way Uniswap V3 works. And basically anything that has this structure of like working with discrete prices. And how, how does the algorithm work at the end? You know, why is aggregation so efficient here? Because what happens is you, know, you have multiple AMMs and the question you're trying to answer is how can you like build some sort of like algorithm that optimally and efficiently uh, gets quotes from all of these uh, liquid DEX designs under the hood. As in, the problem statement is you're a trader or an aggregator or a solver. You call this liquidity pool saying, hey, I want to trade this token in for token out. How do you abstract away all of the complexity uh, and aggregating things in an efficient way? So the, it, uh, it does so by doing something we call generalized matching. So generalized matching is basically it's a, a generalization of the matching engine algorithm that you have in central limit order books. Because like the TLDR of how a central limit order book works is, uh, you know, there's like this data structure containing limit orders, amounts and prices. And the matching engine of the exchange is just gonna like, you know, go through them in the order of price and time priority. 
and just like fill the, the liquidity in the right order. So here it's it's a very uh, an analogous analogous way of thinking, except that you're not really uh, going over static limit orders. You're actually going over smart contracts, and so it looks a lot like uh, an an internet protocol as well, in the sense that the you know let's say you're a trader, you want to trade against this pool, and this pool has a bunch of liquidity models. Let's say it has you know number one is this GLA, which is very efficient for liquidity management. It has a, non, uh, you know, a fairly efficient on-chain order book and maybe a third one that looks like a hybrid. So what, what happens is you don't, you don't even need to know that those are, exist behind the scenes. It's like the pool is going to look at your order and it's going to do a, a, like a handshake, handshake step. It's going to ask each one of them to say, look, um, someone wants to do a swap. Here's my initial reference spot price. Here's like the limit price that this user has, and here's the amount. Would you like to participate in a swap? I, you know, it asks each one of them in a sequence. And it's going to ask questions like, uh, okay, if you want to participate in a swap, would you like to provide some liquidity at the very first uh, pool price that we have? Uh, some might say yes, others might say no, in which case it's going to say, okay, if you don't want to provide liquidity now, when would you like to, to, at which price would you be comfortable providing liquidity? So it turns out that having these, you know, small tuples of information on each round, it's sufficient to construct something that makes it easy to aggregate. Because what happens is, once you get these bits of information for each, you're going to fill the order in, in price priority. As in, if one of the models give you, gave you the best price, you start by filling that portion of the order, right? And only then you go to the next one at the next best price. And then you query them again in like in an iterative way until you either reach the limit price of the order or the swap has been completely filled. And how does that querying work, specifically talking to the liquidity modules? Um, like, how, how would those parameters look like, and why would some liquidity module be more opinionated about providing liquidity in a price range and not the others? Like, how how is that integrated? Um, so, so the, the cool thing is like, you know, from the perspective of the pool itself, they don't really need to know what's going on behind the scenes on liquidity models. Like they just say, you know, I have a very well-defined protocol to fill orders in the order of price priority. That's the sacred rule. Whatever they do eternally doesn't matter. And so then the question becomes, you know, like it's a concentrated liquidity design that, uh, you know, just aggregates a lot of things in the same place. So the question becomes, what's like the risk profile of each liquidity model participant, right? Because, you know, maybe let's say that, you know, there's like an order book there and like uh, Citadel is, you know, happens to be deploying liquidity there. You know, they might have some like, they might know something that the market does not. And for that reason, they might be able to quote at like the best possible price for the user compared to maybe the AMM or like even the other like on-chain native players. But the thing is, you know, like Citadel has like given like the best possible call to the user, but assuming you still have some liquidity left to be filled, the other ones still get queried like in the order of fairness. And at the end of at the end of the swap, what happens is there's some accounting where you do a callback to each one of these and says, look, the swap terminated, here's like the, the, the post conditions. You can now safely update your internal state and unlock your re-entry guards and things like that. And, uh, you know, all of the accounting happens at, at a stage as well. And 
what decides in which order the smart contracts are queried because the situation in each one of them could be different at a certain time and you know if you catch them at the bad time it could have um, not fulfilled the trade that it could have fulfilled like 10 seconds ago so is there like a how do you define a priority or order um good question so there there is this concept of like an initial ordering as in whenever the solver or the aggregator the trader comes into the pool there's basically like a small array of call data that is the same size as like the number of liquidity models in the pool where you're basically able to say i want to query these ones in in the, the for the first time at this very specific ordering and there might be some good reasons why you want to do that for example let's say that you're like you're a solver and you care about gas costs what you can do is you can give uh, give priority to the liquidity models that are simulated off chain and that you believe that are going to give you like the most liquidity per unit of gas cost so this this something allows you to do that but after that initial communication step that happens like on the, the initial price of the pool, then the transition is going to happen like in order of price priority. As in, we're not really going to make any, any more assumptions. It's more like we're just going to ask them, okay, we gave, the pool gives the liquidity models a chance to provide their, their quota initial price. And the next one to be queried is going to be the, simply the one that has the, the best possible price for the user. Because that also means that it will consume the least amount of gas, right? Because basically it says that if you call liquidity module and you're able to completely fill the swap now, you don't need to call the next one. So you save on gas because of that. And could I arbitrarily choose any order if I wanted to for some reason? Or it's capped at that first layer of abstraction? Uh, it's capped at the first layer of abstraction, uh, as in you only choose the ordering at a very start. And the reason for that is, is if you if you were just to choose any kind of arbitrary ordering, you could get into uh, strange edge cases where. So the thing is, remember the pool doesn't make assumptions about how the liquidity models look internally, and if the liquidity model looks a lot like a, an AMM, there's a critical property called path independence, right? As in the the MM security assumptions rely on the fact that you know a certain price will only be given if all of the liquidity to the other side of that price has been filled already. Because like if you create like arbitrary orderings and like maybe skipping one instead of the others, what's gonna happen is um they the the MM will, will just become broken internally. And like when you break path independence and EMMs, it can be quite dangerous because it opens to, to what's called like round trip attacks, where basically a trader can do swaps in multiple directions and extract value from the LBs. So price priorities, like it happens to be a necessary condition for them to coexist well in, in the same place. And it, it also has like the, this nice feature of like, you know, optimally routing the orders across all of these because one, one, one strange thing to think about is that, you know, routing can be very difficult in a monolithic paradigm, right? Because you have like hundreds of DEXs as separate protocols with super different pricing logic. And so like what often happens is, you know, if you're an aggregator, you can't really change the way these DEXs have been deployed, right? You just need to work on as a wrapper on top. So if you're an aggregator interact with, let's say five DEXs, you might need to do at least, you know, 10 token transfers because they're like, you know, separate entities. And even if you try your best, you, you're probably not even going to find the optimal routing problem, right? 
because you might think it's like almost optimal, but then someone placed a transaction on, on the wrong place in the block and your assumptions become wrong, right? So the cool thing about this one is that, um, you know, it doesn't work for every single AMM or DEX design, but for the ones that can be, you know, fit into this interface and structure, the pool doesn't make any assumptions. And because of the price priority rule, you kind of get the optimal routing by, by construction. Meaning that if you're like a DEX developer, instead of just building your DEX as like in a, a very fragmented way, you can just, you know, comply with this interface and then have the guarantee that even if you don't have a lot of liquidity, you, w you will get uh, order flow basically on the same block almost. Because most of the times it doesn't require change to, to off-chain code to, to just whitelist it into a pool. And if I wanted to plug in any existing DEXs, like let's say I want to plug in Uniswap in this architecture, would I be able to, the existing Uniswap contract? Um, you So you could do that in theory, but I think it would kill a lot of the benefits because what happens is uh, these nice, you know, a big part of these efficiency properties, you know, it comes from the fact of, for example, let's say you have, you know, five uh, DEX designs plugged into the same pool that respect these rules. Uh, the the best thing for like the the user is actually for all of these liquidity models to agree we're going to keep the reserves in the same place like maybe in the pool itself or somewhere else that's nice because then the user or the aggregator whenever they come to do a swap they they might interact with like five of these dexes but they only do two transfers right which is a huge amount of gas savings so if you were to interact with let's say unis a uniswap pool or any deployed dex for that matter you know, you could build like a wrapper contract, but you would need to do it in a way that kills the benefits because, you know, maybe you have the liquidity on Uniswap at the start of a transaction, then you need to do just-in-time liquidity to place it on the AMM, give the quote, and then put it back. It adds a lot of gas costs, so it might not be feasible on mainnet. I see. And at what level are the fees set? Because I imagine that Valentis would have its own fees, but then the DEXs that are the modules would also want to have their own own set of fees. So how does that play out? Um, yes, yeah, so that's a good question. It, we actually like the way, by the way, the protocol is designed, remember. So when I said that governance cannot make any decision whatsoever about the core pools, that also includes the fact that governance cannot forcibly charge fees to pool managers or liquidity providers. And so the approach that we're taking here is, you know, as like building a system where like there's like, you know, zero economic barriers for people to build on top and extend. And so that literally means that any team can just, you know, take these smart contracts as just like a starting point as they would take maybe the open Zeppelin contracts. They can just reuse some of the models or like build their own. Uh, but they can basically govern every single aspect of like their ecosystem as if it were theirs. You know, they can charge their protocol fees. They don't have to, to uh, uh, we don't forcibly charge anything. But how does that interplay? So the way we see things happening in the long run is, you know, it's, it's maybe what happened a bit with, you know, Cosmos Chains and the Cosmos Hub, right? So you have this idea of like uh, Cosmos Chain, they're like aligned with Cosmos. They usually, you know, they communicate through IBC. They might have some built-in economics that is beneficial to the Cosmos Hub, or at least, you know, some of them hope to have that. Whereas others may just want to use the Cosmos stack just to, you know, quickly spin off their own chains, but in a way which they don't really 
they might not give too much value to the Cosmos ecosystem. And in either way, that's fine, right? Because at the end of the day, you have a mix of the two. So what I expect is going to happen is some, you know, some pools are going to be completely isolated from the core protocol, while others are going to be like part of the ecosystem. And if they choose to be part of the ecosystem, then you know there could be like a, some some perks in doing so because um, you know there's going to be like a, we're kind of like working on like a, a standards in place for how you how you could bring new liquidity models into production safely or any module where the idea is even though we allow people to just permissionlessly you know deploy the pool contracts and customize as they wish without asking for permission it's still good to have like a, at least an off-chain process to decide what makes a model go from like a, co a proof of concept to production right and there's going to be guidelines like um, it, it maybe needs to have at least one or two audits uh, it needs to have like independent review by DAO participants. It needs to pass some on-chain proposal that, you know, puts that smart contract factory as part of like the protocol factory, because at a stage, any you know, people have like a central registry of things they they might wish to deploy, and they have been vetted by security experts and and DAO community. So there is there might be a lot of value in that in breaking this system from concept into production as almost like public goods. We're following like a different model, where the idea is, let's say that you deploy liquidity pool, and if you just want to keep it isolated and you don't donate anything to the protocol, it's just like do your own thing. It's completely fine. But if you see value in things like uh, you know being a bit more aligned with a DAO to get access to other grants programs and like other other social benefits, then what you can do is you can you as the pool manager. You can choose to donate a portion of the the swap fees that your pool has accrued, and the way it's gonna work is um, you donate a portion of the fees, you send that into a special auction contract where those fees that could be, for example, ETH and USDC, the each one of these amount of tokens they will be auctioned off over like a week period, and so the way it's gonna work is you know. There might be a lot of pools doing that at the same time, so like the auction is like always running, and the idea is is it's a mechanism that's going to look lo a lot like a gradual Dutch auction, where you know maybe there's there's some reference starting price, and then you know there's a couple of scenarios, maybe someone buys like at the highest possible price, even if that's above fair market price at a time, or if no one wants to buy, there's going to be a threshold at which there's going to be an arbitrage. So any search is going to be happy to, you know, buy value on the open market, put it there and get the funds. And once that's done, though, those tokens, they, they will be burned. And like this process is happening concurrently across all of these pools, right? So what does that mean? It means that, you know, by doing this auction buyback buy and burning the val, you now have like an approximation to what's like the pro rata amount of value that each pool contributed to the protocol, right? So you might have something like, you know, some pools send fees in ETH, others in USDC, others might send only in ETH because the other token is not yet whitelisted. Like, let's say maybe there's a pool with Shiva and ETH, but Shiva hasn't been whitelisted yet, so they only co contribute with ETH. And you have all of them contributing their fair share. And like the fair share that they contribute depends on two things, right? It depends on like the amount of organic weekly volume that they keep getting over time. And it depends on the, um, 
So amount, amount of volume over time. Oh yes, and depends on like the share that they take out of the LPs, which you know it shouldn't be too much. It will be bounded to a reasonable value, but at the interplay between the two, it will get pools to give away more or less. So you have all of them like giving away some portion of the revenue. You're like they're getting like uh, val tokens. They're burning the tokens, and so basically like at the end of each week, you're gonna like take a snapshot and say okay what's the amount of val that each pool has burned so far and so you might you might see things like uh, you know maybe this pool has burned 20 percent of all the val for the week and so then you're going to use that as a reference to decide what's the amount of token emit that you should give away for for that week so that's where the concept of a gauge cap comes in they will be able to use their their token to just decide on a pro rata basis you know what amount of uh uh, maximum rewards should each pool get on a weekly basis and so for example like a pool that has let's say 10% of like the token staked uh, into that pool they will get only a maximum of 10% meaning that even if the LP in that pool tries to wash trade their way into you know making more than 10% they'll get capped so there's no economic incentive to do that that's sort of the idea right so if one pool becomes like the major contributor they're still going to be capped at a certain limit. Yeah. So th the idea is like, you know, remove governance from the equation and like trying to create this incentive where, so you have like to, to almost like two players here, you know, you have the, uh, the pool managers that decide how much revenue should be contributed. And you have the protocol that like, you know, continuously adjusts like the gates, the caps of each pool. And you, you know, maybe at the end of the day, what you expect is to have a combination of, you know, s the pools that have the most organic volume, assuming that everyone is like competing on the same level, like percentage of fees donated. You expect that, you know, more organic volume of, of pools will lead towards governance, increasing the cap for, for those pools, which will lead to LPs moving their liquidity to that pool, to the service of users. I see. And... What stage of development are you guys in right now? Um, we're, we're currently being audited. Uh, I, we expect the audits to be finished by end of November, already assuming all the potential fixes that we need to do. Uh, there's also the timing where we, you know, we're building our developer SDKs to make it easy to integrate with the protocol, building like all the off-chain components that you need. And you know, like things like potential partnerships and like specific use cases that we we're gonna reveal like in the next coming weeks as well. Cool, cool. I like the concept of being like having certified pools and also enabling the Wild West to exist. Like you know, some of the auditor ones probably you guys can show in the you the user interface or something like that, and then. Exactly. If you want to export the backend, you have the the non-auditor pools that, you know, anything goes. I think there's a nice interplay and allows for, allows to cater for different scenarios, you know, in the future. For example, some pools might, depending on how like regulations come about, some pools might only be able to exist with QIC, but then you have all these other pools that don't care about QIC. So I think that's really cool because something that we're seeing with the direction of things that some DEXs might end up being QIC and that sucks. But if you have something that's like immutable and it 
it's a free for all kind of thing. I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's like you you kind of like you need to find <laughs> the sweet spot between giving too much optionality but and having the cost of fragmentation, right? Because uh, it's nice. It's nice to build this system where you don't enforce anyone in a specific pool or liquid or module. It's like you just you just build it as a canvas. You provide some options, and people will figure out where what they're most comfortable with. But you know, depending on how much sovereignty they want to have, or like how isolated they want to be from each other, that might give some liquidity fragmentation. So to fight off on liquidity fragmentation, you know, that's you have you know, one. You have universal pools, the ones where all of these liquidity models are like coordinated in a nice way, but can keep their funds in the same place to yield some efficiencies. Or you can also do so through, uh, you know, the sovereign pool that only has one liquidity module, but you can also say, I want the funds to be here by default, where the meaning of here could be like a singleton contract that people are comfortable uh, pulling everything together there. I'm very keen to see Valorant is coming out of the gate, so Appreciate people it. can use it. And how long did it take for you guys to put all of this together? Um, so the, the initial design and research, we I would say, started about May or June last year. Uh, we started building it, the, the solidity contracts, I, I think it was around September. Yeah, that makes sense. Because I imagine it, there must be so many things to figure out along the way, right? Because it's... It'll, seems like a quite a complex architecture to get everything right and even understand what sort of um, things that could go wrong yeah yeah i mean it's it's a, it's a lot of trial and error and like um it's a, you know lessons learned like d during the process i would say is that um you know of course you know i described a very ambitious protocol and you as like a developer, you may have this temptation, okay, I want to build this extra module and I want to launch with this one and that one. But if if you're not careful with the, w the way you plan things, you may end up in a situation where you don't have enough time to do code covers and just to clean up the repo and write documentation. And that probably means that you're probably going to have a lot of bugs that auditors may not even end up catching on time. So kind of like what we decided to do is like, instead of launching with, you know, the five liquidity models that we wanted to launch with, which sounds crazy, but you know, like it's like five decks designs in a sense. But, you know, in doing so, we had about almost two months of just like internal uh, black hat, sorry, white hat hacking the protocol, right? As in a team member writes a bunch of code, then someone else will write a test and try and break it and then just rotate around. And the surprising thing is, you know, it really, teaches us to be a lot more humble about writing smart contract code because you there were so many bugs in place that we could never expect from like just initial tests that we had set up. So, yeah. Yeah, it's hard. Writing smart contracts is hard. There's always something that you didn't think about. And something I wanted to ask you about as well is to talk about of your war room experience how did that go like give us a little bit of a um story um so first i have to say that you know at a time we were super lucky because it was like uh it was a war room situation that it was mitigated before it happened right for the most part it's not it's not as stressful as like you know the black hat happened and then we were, we were to a war room so of course there was still a lot of tension and stress 
and like I would say that like the first day was uh, we were we were lucky because um, uh, there was like I, th I think Yash like I think he's a developer at Lemma. He he was the one that initially saw the bug existing in his contract, very similar to the YDX. So you know like he got in touch with us. Um, we you know it was a week and so we stopped everything we were doing just to to have like an action plan. And basically the the action plan was you know we identified the bug. Uh, after the fact, there was also clear about a solution, and then there was like you know multiple team members working on different streams. So I, w I was more like uh, on my side, I was mostly like doing like the transaction sum submission infrastructure because like the thing is, we were super lucky that it happened with Ethereum mainnet because you have really is like the flashbots relay, right? The thing is, you might have like the perfect transaction to to white hat rescue your contract. But if like a generalized front runner or someone else just just picks it up and you don't have an easy way to protect yourself against it, your white hack will probably not be successful. Like it's only going to work if you trust that the generalized front runner is generous enough to give to give away the funds. So we're very lucky on that because, you know, we're able to split into multiple streams where, you know, some team members, they, they work on like the, the, the custom contracts to securely escort the funds. Other team members, they were working on like all the testing suite and like just everything they need to make sure that it's actually going to work. Um, other started to you know uh, to reach out to other firms to to th to see what they they could do if there's more knowledge they can get. Uh, on my side, it was mostly about thinking about you know how can you submit a transaction to the flashbots relay, and then it comes to heuristics like reputation in the relay, right? So one one heuristic that we had was um, so because we're going to do the transaction into a very new fr fresh address that has never interacted with the flashbots relay. Uh, just to be just to be cautious, you know, because relay reputation could have been a thing. We're not sure. What we've done is we we sent I think it was like just one ETH to this address, or like we just made like a simple transaction through the relay, or like three or four. I don't remember. Just to say, okay, this address has interacted before. They've transacted, you know, X amount of ETH at least. So probably it's not the same thing as having like a fresh new address. So we had that as like our reputation thing. And then once everything was ready, was you know we submitted to the relay. It was a very stressful moment because it either works or it doesn't. And there's still the chance of like getting like your block leaked by an uncle and like someone else still stealing your transaction and stuff. Uh, we were lucky because you know we pressed the button once; it didn't go through. But a second time, it went through, and like I think it was about 26 million that it got securely escorted. And then you know security firms reached out to us to say, "Hey, what happened? Was this a bug?" And we said, "No, it's all good for now. We, it was a white hat, but now we need to keep an eye for open approvals and things like that." So the next couple of days were just about like writing searchers on a mempool uh, to just front-run transactions for for the users in a good way to to save the funds yeah that sounds hectic did you guys ever had some sort of role play or some sort of training for that kind of situation um not really i mean i was very comfortable with the whole stack you know because i've done a lot of things with like bundle submission on the flashbots really you know both in my beginnings as a, an amateur MEV searcher, but like also later on when I was working on Gelato Core infrastructure where I added some support for that. So I was familiar across the stack, you know, like uh, I would say the technical experience was there, maybe not the social one, I would say, 
which is why we we also got in touch with like the people at Flashbots. They they were super helpful, and it's I would say it's like it's a growth experience, right? I hope I hope it never happens to me or like anyone ever again. But if it happens, you you need to be prepared and just keep it cool. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And is there any other ways for people to be involved with volunteers at the moment? Um, at the moment, I would say that uh, so. We, we will definitely release a lot more com content in the next few weeks. We even like gonna attend some some of the ETH conferences that you'll see on the calendar. But you know, if anything that I said today sounds interesting, just you know, please reach out to us. Like, if you're a protocol with pain points, like you would like more efficient ways to you know manage your concentrated liquidity, or maybe you wanna have a concentrated liquidity distribution that has perfect composability because you get a fungible token or things like you want to have like maybe more custom domain specific modules that fix one of your pain points and maybe help you to internalize more revenue to your protocol, please do reach out because that's exactly the, the kind of use case we like to tap on. And I would say also like if your project supports rebase tokens, uh, you know, because they are not as easy to support in most contemporary DEXs, like we can also do something for that. That's cool, that's cool. And is there any way that I could personally contribute in some way besides the podcast? Because I think it's a really cool project that takes an angle that I haven't seen anyone else take before. And I think it's like contributing positively for the ecosystem. I I, I look forward to having you and, and everyone, everyone else. And what I can say on that is, you know, we want to make like the code open source that the Valantis DAO maybe will launch a couple of weeks or months after the initial protocol launch. And I would say like, once information is public and there are some docs, just like, you know, ask questions, propose changes, iterate on the design. And if there's anything you would like to build or anyone else, we please reach out to us and we can help as well. Well, it's been a pleasure, man. I enjoyed the talk with you a lot. 